0: Welcome to this episode of Profess Hers, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature, all discussed through the perspective of women's issues and feminism. I'm Allegra, and this summer I watched pretty much every television show. All of them, all the shows. Uh, I did binge-watch The Closer on uh, Amazon, which I is a like show have talked about that before from a long time ago. But I hadn't seen all of the episodes, so I watched them all. I was just looking for something to watch that wasn't Grey's Anatomy, because I promised people I would stop rewatching watching <laughs> that show. And I'm Misty, and this summer I watched Stranger Things. All three of them? No, the last one. You've seen the previous I two already. I have seen the previous two already. Oh, wow. So you were up to date on I Stranger Things. I am not only up to date, I am current. Wow. I watched them the same week they came out. Oh my God. Right? Whew. I'm surprised. Are you impressed with me? I'm surprised the earth is still here. (laughs) So this uh, week we're going to talk about summer TV. A little lighter than what we've been doing. Because unfortunately, okay, I guess it is. Unfortunately, summer is done, coming, coming to a close. We're in our first week of classes. We are. And summer TV is ending. And that's very sad because I like summer TV. Oh, I'm excited for fall TV. Most. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely excited for fall TV. But most uh, summer TV on networks is reality TV. Do you watch? Yeah, I didn't know that until I saw these notes. And no, you don't watch any reality TV. I watch the news. Does that count? You watch the news. And C-SPAN. Does C-SPAN count as reality TV? Uh, I guess that's the most reality TV. Technically speaking, it's reality TV. But you don't watch any like baking competitions, cooking. No. No (laughs) Competition show? Something. No. Okay. Mm-mm. Wow. I do have some reality TV news for you. Okay. So there's a show on in the summer's called Bachelor in Paradise. I'm familiar with the concept of The Bachelor. So Bachelor in Paradise, I'm not super familiar with, and I didn't want to research in totality. Uh, I 100% support people who find joy watching The Bachelor. That's cool. That's not for me. Bachelor in Paradise, I think a bunch of people from previous seasons of The Bachelor all, like, go to a resort, island resort together, and then they just kind of, like, it's like a big brother. Wait, wait, so the Bachelors and Bachelorettes do this? Or, like, the people that didn't win? All the ones who aren't already paired up? Oh, okay. So, I think... If I'm wrong, someone can let me know. I'm sure <laughs> there's an avid fan, but there is—they uh, had the first same-sex relationship in the Bachelor oh, okay. franchise on Bachelor in Paradise this summer. A former bachelorette brought on, or brought a woman to the show, or to the Paradise Island, um, whom she was in a relationship with, and so they showed that on the on the program. So this is going to date my uh, reality TV viewing yeah is this like survivor or like somebody gets voted off i don't think so but i don't okay. i don't know also i don't know if survivor might still be on is it maybe i don't know i so- used to watch survivor and what was the one where they they raced around the world amazing race i was gonna call it the great race and i'm like i know that's not it amazing race like won some Emmy- emmys like it oh, really wasn't, yeah it wasn't entire trash no that was fun tv uh, I say trash lovingly. Let's all remember I watched Grace Anatomy. Uh, but the host, Chris Harrison, said about this social progress that The Bachelor is making, we're a microcosm of what's happening in the world. We're all evolving and getting more intelligent, and our eyes are opening in a lot of ways. He did say there are a lot of people behind the scenes on The Bachelor, producers and crew members who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, And so they helped make this story genuine and respectful, and they brought that story, that authentic story, to light. And what he said, and this is another Chris Harrison quote, is, I'm not going to say we're changing the world. It's an entertainment show, so let's stay in our lane a little bit. But I am proud of the fact that we aren't afraid of these social issues, and are pushing these issues a little bit, and hopefully we do our part in raising the level of debate. And like society, our show will continue to evolve as well. So there's I, a lot packed into that, and I, I, I'm questioning some of it. So I think is nice intentions, I guess. But um, I'm proud that we aren't afraid of these social issues. Social issues being the fact that there are gay people in the world, right? Apparently, that's something that we've all been openly aware of and talking about, <laughs> even on TV shows since For a while. The '90s, at the I mean, at the least, yeah. So they're not pushing anything. I mean, I'm glad that that it's happened on the show, I suppose. There are plenty of uh, LGBT people who watch uh, The Bachelor. And so I'm sure it's nice to have some representation in that way. But for him to say that they're pushing the issues and raising the level of the debate. He he also said they're not changing the world, which is true, is very true. But what is the debate Is the debate, do lesbians and bisexuals exist? Because the answer is yes, there's not a debate. So I don't know what he means by raising the debate. Was there pushback? Were people upset about this? Not that I am aware. I mean, I'm sure. People get upset about everything. Oh, and the Washington Post? Yeah, Vanity Fair, the Washington Post. I'm telling you, because it's not remarkable to me or you that people who are gender fluid or bisexual uh, exist in the world, and have relationships. That's not a news update for any of us, for either of us. But this show has huge audience and a huge cultural reach. So it is significant in that way that people who that the number of people who watch the show saw this storyline or this event evolve. On, right on the show. And so that's why Vanity Fair and the Washington Post were writing about the story. I'm a little surprised honestly that it was this big of a deal. It was a very very big deal. <laughs> and so I have the ratings, okay, for summer TV. Did you put a chart in our notes? I did. I have a little chart with some numbers. The number one show is The Bachelorette. Wait, so The Bachelorette and Bachelor Paradise are both running at the same time? yes that is too much but with different people i think okay so up in the top we have bachelorette uh, america's got talent number three is bachelor in paradise so again that's a huge reach and i think that's why that was a significant story beverly hills 90210 but that also i think is a reality show that i think is like an update of what the original stars were doing oh okay i didn't think that you would know about it no i don't (laughs) You, you guessed correctly. America's Got Talent on Wednesday is number five. But didn't you already say America's Got Talent? Oh, that but was that on, was Tuesday. That was Tuesday, yes. Wednesday's, I think, like the results show of who won and who didn't win. Bachelor in Paradise Tuesday is number six. Monday was number three. So as you can see... There's a, a lot of Bachelor on here. A lot of watching of this show. And then we have all the Big Brothers... Uh, And then lots... I mean, just all reality shows for the most part. Songland, which is like a songwriting competition. Oh, okay. I never even heard of that one. American Ninja Warrior. I take it back. We sometimes watch this. My daughter likes this. American Ninja Warrior? Yeah. Okay. So you do watch reality shows. Uh, Bring the Funny, which is like a comedy competition. Celebrity Family Feud. Amazing Race is still on. Look at that. Oh, good. Press Your Luck is a game show. MasterChef, reality competition, $100,000 pyramid game show. Holy Moly, which is my favorite show what is that? of the summer. Holy Moly is extreme mini golf competition. What? <laughs> like building the courses? No. Okay. So they've built an extreme mini golf course. I'm sorry. I'm going to need you to stop. What yeah. is extreme mini golf? I'm going to tell you what makes it extreme. Just hold on. Okay. okay. So they build these crazy mini golf courses okay well they built one mini golf course and they have rob riggle do you know him he used to be on the daily show he's also a retired marine but he's super funny no he's one of the commentators and then they have somebody who is the play-by-play guy from monday night football joe tessitore oh my gosh those are the two announcers so that we have like real sports announcer and then v- fake sports announcer. goofy guy uh steph curry the basketball player is a producer and he's also on the show so anyway uh it's extreme so like you know how sometimes you play mini-golf, you have to putt through a windmill? Yeah. So they have a hole where they have three giant windmills, and you have to putt through them, but then you also have to run through them and not get hit by the blades? Oh, so it's like American Ninja Warrior and... Mini-golf. It's so, Yeah, sort of me right of you know, that show Wipeout. Do you remember that yes, show? Yeah, yes. it reminds me of that, but it's super funny because of the commentary. And they have things where you have to run over water obstacles and zip line and do all kinds of run up a ramp that's icy, run up a ramp where logs are falling on you. Okay, this is a real, real dumb question. Yeah. Are these regular people or are these like, I mean, is there like a league for this? So a lot of them are people who have played semi-professional golf. Okay. So not just... Some of them identify as professional mini golfers, but I'm not sure what that means. But there are also people who like, one guy runs a blog for mini golf reviews. Uh, a lot of them are trick shot artists. Oh, okay. So a lot of them have, like, golf backgrounds. Um, but a lot of them are just, you know, like, I'm a kindergarten teacher and I play mini golf every weekend. So, yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. Fun. So Yeah, and there's a winner every week. So anyway, holy moly. It's on I didn't there. even know this was a show, but now I want to go watch it's it. It's on Hulu. It's really funny. Um, so... Anyway, we have lots and lots and lots and lots of reality shows here in the summer. A lot of, like, um, competition shows. Yes. People like to, I don't know, we like to watch people fight in the summer, I guess. So summer TV is... (laughs) Okay. We need a winner. Okay. We need a champion, right? Sure. Someone to root for. Um, But, you know, shows are different in the summer than they are in the nine months of the year well and this is different from when we were younger do you remember like when you were in middle school maybe even high school there was nothing on summer tv it was just reruns of stuff you'd already seen right so this is very different yes so it used to be so televisions have had a season schedule since television started Mm -hmm. and they followed the same schedule that radio shows use which is basically september to may the school year, <laughs> and they took this. They take the summer off, and they fill those remaining summer weeks with replacement shows. And then, as you said, starting in like the seventies or eighties, they started running a lot of reruns, and they still do that now. Right, like if you turn on CBS on a Tuesday night in the summer, you might be watching a NCIS episode from February. So that's still a thing. But debuting new content. And things that are maybe won't get as much of an audience and things that are cheaper to make, like reality TV shows, make sense because fewer people watch T V Yeah, that does make sense actually. Yeah. I mean it, it it doesn't cost nothing to make Big Brother, but you have to run a house and get some crew and But then... you're not hiring Kristen Bell. Right, exactly. And you're not paying for props and special effects and all those kinds of things. So um, fewer people just watch TV in the summer and their schedules are less consistent. So even if you are watching a show, you might not be watching it every week. Right. um, Because people go Go on on vacation, vacation. summer school. They move a lot in the summer Mm -hmm. um, and schedules just change. And so TV ratings are set in September. And that's why the new shows debut then. Oh, okay. And you're, and the major networks, so this is ABC, NBC, Fox, those stations, they are trying to get the most ratings they can between September and May because that's how you get the the ratings of like, we're America's Number one. most watched network. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that's all about advertising money. That's all about courting advertisers, creating content that advertisers will find friendly and. Ultimately, you're creating content for people who are most likely to spend money, not on entertainment and content, but spend money on things that are being advertised. Right. And I think the other thing is, like, say I'm a ABC viewer. That's yeah. my channel. Yeah. But if they don't do anything in the summer, I might switch to NBC or Fox. Yeah. And if I'm seeing all their previews for new shows, then my allegiance might be somewhat up for grabs. Exactly. So cable and streaming services don't have the same constraints and they in some ways can kind of hijack the summer to show some of their premium shows, which is why Stranger Stranger Things. Things, Orange is the New Black and those kinds of things come out in the summer. Before streaming, cable networks would sometimes create big shows in the summers for the same reason. TNT, like That's when The Closer came on is the summers. Oh, okay. Because you're catching people that are... Over Christmas break because those people aren't watching NCIS. Okay. Because NCIS isn't on. So that's when you can get audiences to to channels like TNT or USA is usually summers and wintertime. That makes sense. Yeah. So... And then lots of folks are looking for kind of ultra premium content like Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad. What makes it ultra premium? We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But... That stuff takes more time and more money. And so there are usually fewer episodes of those shows. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one thing I do want to make sure that we know is that streaming networks and premium cable are courting viewers and audience members. They are not courting advertisers. Does that make sense? So Netflix does not have to make shows that appeal to people who will buy cars and insurance, candy bars and medication. Netflix has to make shows that will make people want to keep subscribing to Netflix. That kind of makes sense, but I do see a shift in those shows recently. Like, I'm thinking Stranger Things, with all the, like, Coke placement. Yes, there is product placement, Mm -hmm. absolutely, in those shows. Yes. So, I mean, I can see other revenue streams that maybe three years ago weren't as big of a deal. That's true. That's absolutely true. Um, So, those producers, streaming networks and premium cable, they can have episodes that are random times, right? It can right. be forty two minutes, it could be seventy-five minutes long. Um Yeah, that tricked me with Game of Thrones. And they can also make very genuine shows and tell different kinds of stories because again, we don't have to be afraid of scaring the grandma grandma demographic. We don't have to be afraid of making a storyline so edgy that people turn it off and never well and they're also not held to the same decency standards. Right. Which we talked about before. I am like calling them decency standards. Well, that's standards. what they are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, that's the the official name of it, is a decency but, standard. I mean, I would argue that it's indecent to not have, you know, gay people or people of color on TV. I was talking specifically about nudity. Oh. Like, they're allowed to push the bar yeah. more than something on okay a yeah. network show. They can definitely be more naked on HBO yes. and Netflix. Yes. And say more F-words. Yes. Yeah. So... I would argue maybe that those shows on streaming services and premium cable might better reflect our society because we can appeal to a wider group of people. I don't know about that. Why? Because if you're on a network, you have to appeal to broad audiences. Yeah, but you have to appeal to a specific kind of broad audience. And that is the person who... The people who have money to buy cars and insurance, right? But if you're on Netflix or Hulu or even Amazon Prime now, right? You can have a very successful show with a very, very limited audience. Yeah, but that's why I think it's important because if you are appealing to everyone, right, that means that you are making your show palatable. Right, you're watering to old white down. people. Yes. So if we can have lots of shows for lots of smaller audiences, that makes streaming platforms more reflective of culture and society in general. I w- taken together, yes. Yeah. But each individual show, no. Right. Okay. I think I misunderstood what yeah, you're yeah, saying. Yeah. But I mean, it's a good point, right? Like network shows have to appeal to the masses, mm-hmm. mass consumerism. So they have to in some ways, reflect people's values back to them. Otherwise, they'll turn them off. And if you're going to, i think a Modern Family. Yeah. You gradually kind of introduce those issues and make bigger stances and bigger statements. Yeah. You don't start from day one there. Yeah, you don't. I mean, there were always gay characters on Modern Family. Right. But there wasn't a big gay wedding on the first episode. Exactly. They didn't adopt a child on the first episode. Actually, they did. On the very first episode? Pretty sure. Okay. Well, pretty sure okay I think that's how you found all three families were part of the same family was they were coming to the adoption party maybe I don't know I don't remember the first episode of Modern family why I did watched you... like the first two seasons so that's you... all I remember why do you remember it <laughs> What world is this that we're living in <sighs> So you asked me earlier what makes something Prestige TV. You said ultra premium. Ultra premium. Well, I've I've upgraded it to Prestige <laughs> now. Um, so this is basically a concept that was invented by the West Wing and the Sopranos. Really? Okay. I mean, not on purpose. Like, those two shows came out, and this is when people started talking about premium Prestige TV. Okay. Okay. Um, so if you think about those two shows, the West Wing and the Sopranos, you'll notice they have some things in common. They both star and feature storylines about men. Okay. I was like the White House <laughs> in one and the mob in <laughs> corruption. But they're very male led shows. Yes. They both have they both have and made a point to have important female major characters. But the, But the, not in the beginning and not Right. Right off the bat. Exactly. Um, so, so here I'm going to list some shows that people consider prestige TV <laughs> you want to see how many I know The Wire nope like you don't know it or you've never seen it I have. A, I think I kind of know what it's about but no I've never seen it okay it's the best show ever made so just remember that Lost watched it Dexter nope Mad Men no Breaking Bad no Sopranos nope Game of Thrones yes Veep mm, I, I tried so hard to get you to watch Veep yeah I didn't want to say no no House of Cards. No. True Detective. Don't even know what that one is. True Detective? Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey in the first season? Mm, don't know what that is. Oh, my God. Atlanta? No. The Handmaid's Yes. Tale. Westworld? No. Okay. Westworld, I think, is robots, right? Spoiler alert, yes. Oh, am I not supposed to know that? <laughs> That's all I know about it. <laughs> all I know is there's robots. <laughs> uh, so... I just listed a bunch of shows, and most of them are pretty male-led and run by, written by, produced by men. Of course, Game of Thrones, V, Pass of Cards, Handmaid's Tale, and Westworld have female leads or female Mm co-leads, and some females writing and working on the show, which we've talked about. But these are the shows that are considered smarter, more character-driven, more cinematic, more more important, with a wider... More important. Wider... Hmm. More, longer, more longer. I teach English. With a longer lasting impact on culture. So those are the shows that we imagine or we pretend or we assume shape culture instead of being shaped by it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we would call these the most culturally dominant shows. The shows people are most likely to talk about, have watch parties for. But they're mostly male. Okay. But we're going to talk today in specifics about some shows that came on this summer, right, that we think made at least some commentary, yes, on gender. And I think some unintentional commentary in some cases. Yeah. And not all good commentary no. on gender, Mm-mm. but all of these shows that we're going to talk about today came on this summer and make some kind of commentary, yes, on gender. So first we're going to start with Stranger Things spoilers okay so you've seen it and i love it you love it i love it okay good so it's created by the duffer brothers which is two dudes yes and it's mostly written and produced by them so not a lot of women running things behind the scenes my conflict with this show is i don't know if i love it because i love it or you love it because it's in the 80s yes yeah yeah they do a great job of of that that Goonies, kids in the 80s Yes. Feel. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. absolutely. My general impression is, of this season, is they added two female primary characters. They elevated one and added another yeah. one. No, they... Erica was in the previous season. You're, you're absolutely right. So Erica was in the previous season. So uh, they added some more female adventure. So it wasn't just like women on the sidelines like, oh my God, what's going to happen? And all the men doing fighting. Uh, and they did a better job, I think, of exploring female friendships and ideas about not needing boys or not needing men. Yes. They also had uh, at least one LGBT reveal. That's what it was called in the articles I read this season. And that's Steve's co-worker, Robin. Yes. Do you want to just jump in with each character and do it that way? Rather than, like, go through storylines? Because I think characters might be easier. Yeah. Okay. Let's start with Robin. Okay. Why did you like her? She's um funny and she makes fun of Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Steve needs to be taken down a few notches sometimes. Okay. I liked her before the reveal because she was useful, right? right? They didn't just add a character to add a character. Yeah. She and, wasn't a love interest. And her personality wasn't girl. Yeah. Because a lot of these like adventure boy-led shows, not men-led, boy-led, mm-hmm. It's you have the smart one, you have the funny one, you have the nervous one, and you have the girl. Yeah. Like her whole personality is girl. Yes, that's true. Yeah. So Robin's not that. She's competent, she kind of keeps her head together. And then which I' also she makes fun of Steve. And she makes fun of Steve. Which apparently is really important to some people. <laughs> it is. And then I liked the reveal. Mm-hmm. That that was a that was a very well done scene. Uh I felt a lot of emotions when I was watching it, and I really felt things for both Robin and for Steve. This is going to sound real dumb because he's not a real person. That's okay. But I was proud of Steve. Yeah. That he didn't make it a bigger deal than it had to be. Yeah. And he didn't feel rejected, and he didn't take it personally. Yeah. So I thought that was done really, really well. That he recognized, like, this is the thing that's about you, not about me. Right. Yeah. Right, and we can still be friends. Exactly, like he didn't reject her. Yeah, can we the, talk about Nancy now? The, well, I was going to say the okay. reason I said that there's at least one okay LGBT reveal is I don't know if you remember this, but there's a scene later in the show in one of the last episodes where Mike says it's not my fault you don't like girls. To Will, to Will. Mm -hmm. And some people think that means Will is just developing slower. And so he isn't into girls yet. Right. And some people have taken that to mean that Will is gay. Right. And so that is unexplored as of yet. A lot of what people have said about the original intentions for the show, which the original show was very, very different. Um, when they, the like original plans for the show, but the original plans for the show explicitly said, Will is gay. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Okay. We're going to see what happens, I guess, in Stranger Things 4, but, uh, we have at least one, possibly two prominent characters who are gay. Okay. But yes, we can please talk about Nancy because if I had to pick a who's, which Stranger Things character I want to be, it's Nancy. Really? Oh yeah. Okay. Tell me, tell me why. Because she's cool. Okay. Because she's cool. Yeah, I am I have all the academic answers for you. Okay. So I'm going to start with positives first. Yeah. I like that when they're attacked, she is not pushed to the side. Mm-hmm. She's not standing behind, what's the boyfriend's name? Jonathan. Jonathan. Yeah. She's given a shotgun. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah. That's what I'm saying, man. <laughs> Could I be that cool? Probably not. Could I work a shotgun? Mm, we'll see. Um, the other thing I really liked is that Nancy and Jonathan introduced a discussion of gender and class. Yes. Both of those things. Yes. Right. And yes. they're both coming at it from a different point of view. Yes. And not totally understanding each other. Exactly. They, In fact, they seem like they don't understand each other at all. Right. But the one thing they do walk away from that conversation with is, oh, I don't really understand that, what that's like at all. Nancy right. doesn't understand what it's like to be poor and Jonathan doesn't understand what it's like to be a woman in the 80s trying to work exactly yeah yes and trying to be taken seriously Nancy works for a newspaper which I think is a very they both did right yes yeah which I think is a very cool job of course she is treated like a secretary and I mean I don't know what her role is I think maybe they're, think both they're interns, interns. Mm-hmm. Um, but she has ideas for stories and for investigations and she is not taken seriously or treated seriously at all. People they all you know, it's a bunch of men and and around a coff or around a conference table lounging back in chairs, basically laughing at her. Exactly. And that's kind of a trope, but also that's kind of the thing that happened every day in an office in the seventies and eighties. Right. Yeah. So it's a real trope. But she fight. I mean, she directly fights them. She goes against what they say. She refuses to be marginalized. She insists on being taken seriously. She insists on following through with what she wants to do. And even when Jonathan is like, no, you should stop. You're going to get fired. Because, again, that's the the class issue to her. Right. Getting fired it's is not, a, not big deal. a catastrophe to him. Getting fired is. Right. And so. She's willing to push it because she said because she has a safety net to fall back on, right? And because it's super important to her to kind of fi- to fight the patriarchy that she's kind of fighting against. So she investigates and she follows her instincts. I read an article on Vice News okay. about it, and they think that this is an anti-feminist storyline. Really? Okay. What's their take? This is their quote. None of her female co-workers come to her aid, nor does Jonathan, her boyfriend and colleague. She never gets credit or acclaim for the story she uncovered. And despite this pep talk she gets from her mother, she has no professional resolution at all in the show. And so basically what they're saying is the show definitely wants us to root for her and support her and see her as a kind of hero. But the show does not reward her in any way for what she experiences and what she does with the exception of her mom giving her kind of an atta girl right. at end, and that is a good conversation she has with her mom right and i think it's meaningful but it's true she gets no actual formal recognition from anyone right professionally for what she's done so my criticism yeah is that she was less necessary this season than she was in previous seasons. She was not extremely... I mean, to the... To, to the, the ultimate plot. Ultimate storyline, yeah. She yeah. was not. And I feel like the cast grew, the story grew. What do we do with Nancy and Jonathan? Oh, let's just give them jobs at the newspaper. Give them a side adventure, yeah. Yeah. You could have taken that out and the overall story would have been basically the same. yeah. Which is not true in previous seasons. Like, she was integral to what oh, happened. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, it's not that I didn't like what she did. I just felt like they didn't use her character enough or appropriately. Yeah. And then that's the that's that's sacrifice you make, right? When you add in Erica and Max. Robin. Yeah, Max. Yeah. Somebody, I mean, somebody's got to get dropped. So, Joyce, Will's mom, Wynona writer? I feel like in the first season and this is just based on my memory, I feel like in the first season she was she she was tough, right? And she was smart, but she did a lot of wailing, right? And she's more powerful now in season 3 than she was in the first season. I definitely think she's had some character growth and she has this very nice, I think realistic blend of mourning for someone who she's lost trying to protect her children trying to establish relationships and friendships with other people trying to work I mean she has a lot of things that she is responsible for and I think it does the show does a good job of showing how challenging that is and how good she is at navigating all of those things Um, one of the things that the show is exploring is how a big mall will change or did change the dynamics of a town right? and how it kind of closed main streets because it's moved everything into the new fancy mall. And of course, if you live in a suburb, that's something that's constantly happening, right? The cycle of moving a shopping center and things closing down. So she worked in the old part of town, and I think that was interesting. Right. But she's the one who figured things out. Yeah, I mean, she worked with Hopper and the... The science teacher? Oh, yeah. I forgot about the science teacher. Yeah. Uh, but she f- she put it all together, and she had to explain it and figure it out. She also, of course, had to teach Hopper how to be a human person. But <laughs> uh, she's the one who put the pieces together. And then at the end, she's the one who kind of had to literally and figuratively push the button, right, to make right. it. So she had a lot of power. She also spent a lot of time having absolutely no idea where her children were. Which is... It was the 80s, that's, man. That's what everyone says when I bring this up. I'm like, she has no idea where her children are for days. And they're like, it's the 80s. And I'm like, yes, but don't you remember just two years ago, one of her children went missing? Don't you think that would make her a little more hands-on? Probably, but it was the 80s. It was the 80s. Okay. That's just what everyone says. So we got to talk about 11, of course. This one's tough. <sighs> So, because of the nature of her character, right, she doesn't have a lot of. She doesn't express a lot of emotion in very nuanced ways, right. She sees things in very black and white. You're good or you're bad. You're friend or your foe. Um, and that's part of who she is as a character. Has been since season one. It's right. not a deficiency. It, it's almost like a but, <laughs> an alien story, like she's raised on a yes. different planet almost. Yes. yes. Yeah. But at the same time, their relationship with Mike is very weird. Yes. So they spend like basically most of the first few episodes just making out. Yes. Graphically. <laughs> Graphically. <laughs> um and they need her, obviously, to use her powers. Right. And Mike is trying to tell her what's good for her. Yes. And so is Hopper. Yeah. Well, so, but Hopper's her dad, so he can be paternal because he's her dad. but some of what he's saying is good for her is because that's what he wants, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Hopper's not a functioning human. We're going to talk about... (laughs) Don't worry. We're going to talk about Hopper. But, so, she dumps Mike eventually. Yes. Because he's trying to tell her what to do with herself and her... Well, and he lied to her, and that's the thing. Friends don't lie, right? Yes. And so... She develops a sense of herself outside of her relationship. And that she has never, she literally has never had before. Right. Because she doesn't have awareness of who she was before she met Mike and her friends. And so it's important that she get a sense of who she is outside of Mike. Even if she eventually is going to get back together with Mike and they're going to get married, she still has to know who she is all by herself. And that's. They're like, what, 10? 11? They're 12. middle schools. They're teenagers. Oh, not advocate marriage. I, I'm not advocating okay, marriage. Just, I'm just saying, like, even if she is going to be in yeah. a relationship with him, she still has to know who she is independent of her relationship. And that's a very teenage thing, right? Yeah. People get lost in their relationships and they forget who they are and what they want. It's also a very adult thing. Yeah. Grown ups have that issue as well. What's great about this, this whole storyline is that, you know, Max is on Eleven's side the whole time. Right. And Max and Eleven get to have like slumber parties and be best friends and explore female friendship. Whereas I feel in previous seasons, they were kind of competing with each other for boys' attention. Or for for prominence in the group or something. I would say for group belonging. Yeah. Yeah, not for boys' attention. But they are aligned in season three and they're friends. And so we get some great 80s best girlfriends shopping spree right going to the gap kind of thing yeah what what's complicated for you about 11 a lot (laughs) so she has these powers which nobody else has yeah so she's like this really important part of the group yeah given the way she grew up given that she has hopper and mike as the two most important people in her life it is really hard to see her as like either a feminist or a not feminist character yeah Because she doesn't exhibit a lot of awareness, even, that she's female. Yeah. And, like, you look at the way she dresses. And I think they did a great job of this in Mm -hmm. the season. Her clothing changes as she kind of develops into this new personality, right? Of, like, embracing being a girl. Yeah. But at the same time... Well, for... I mean, in season one, I think she was literally wearing boys' clothes. Like, she was wearing... And then they're like we have to get her a dress and then they right. and then it she looks real weird and then yeah <laughs> yeah like children of the corn yeah yeah but then she like she's dressing like Hopper mhm or she's adopting Mike's things mhm and then she meets Max and the same way you can lose yourself in a relationship you can lose yourself in a friendship mhm so i just wish they made like a little bit more of an effort to make eleven her own person yeah at some point yeah and i think that's actually going to happen now that she's off with Joyce. I'm very intrigued to find out what happens now yes. that they've they've split up the team. Yeah. And I, I think her being with a mother figure and Joyce, who kind of just openly accepts her kids mm-hmm. no matter what, mm-hmm. will be a nice change. Mm-hmm. Joyce is a very good version of like a I mean, so she has very stereotypical maternal yeah. uh traits. But she is a kind of evolved version of that because she's still tough. She works. She fights. But she still is that kind of doting, loving, a wipe your face off with a napkin kind of mom. So she has some complexity to her character. But I think you're right. I think being separated and being with Joyce might give Eleven an opportunity to develop. To grow into her own person. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that relationship with Max is bad at all. I think it was great. Yeah. It's just you never saw Eleven just be Eleven. Yeah. Even last season, she goes off with her sister and she comes back dressed, like, with the black dress and the eyeliner. Yeah. It's like, she's just adopting whatever mm-hmm. personality is the strongest influence on her at that moment. Mm-hmm. Well, there are people who do that. Well, yeah, yeah. But I I hope you that want that's not. Eleven to not be that. Yes. Game. What's funny is that Millie Bobby Brown, who plays Eleven, is like... The most expressive. Yeah. Individual. uh, I mean, she's she's an activist. She's very active on social media and she has a very distinct sense of style and a very strong voice. Mm -hmm. So I think it's interesting that her character is like a blank slate is is both super powerful, but also very. Doesn't have a moldable. Yeah. Yeah. Moldable. Let's talk about Erica, though. So I loved Erica. So Erica's smart. She's funny. Um, as you pointed out, she's not a new character, but she's promoted yes. from being just a little sister to being uh, an important role in to having an important role in the story. She isn't super developed, I'll say, um, but she's very interesting and she's very courageous. She takes on adventure uh, she's brave. She's smart. And then, of course, we find out in maybe one of the last couple of episodes that she's a secret nerd. Right. Yeah, I liked that. Uh, I will give you the criticism from Vice before you tell me why you like her. Okay. So here's what Vice said. <clears throat> Erica's played by the scene-stealing 12-year-old Priya Ferguson. She saves the boys and in doing so the world time and time again with her smarts, fearlessness, quick thinking, and ability to fit in small, confined spaces. But her character, who is the only black girl on the show, is positioned as a fast-talking sassmouth, a long-running trope that silos her within a racial stereotype. Her personality is hilarious and stands out in contrast to the more soft-spoken Eleven and Nancy, but her inclusion feels calculated, given that the one other black woman this season, who is the hospital receptionist, is also reduced to a sassy trope. I don't necessarily disagree With this criticism? Yeah. But I'll say the lens I saw her through Mm -hmm. was not the racial or even maybe gender. I saw her as little sister. Yeah. And you were a little sister. Yeah. And you know this. Yeah. And I have a little sister. Yeah. They will smart off to your friends and try to make you look as dumb as you can anytime they get a chance. That's true. So that's the way I saw her was, I'm going to play with my brother's friends and there's nothing he can do about it. Right. Yeah. And I mean... I like that she will negotiate things for ice cream <laughs> because that just shows you she's a little bit younger than everybody else. Right. But she's just as maybe smart and and brave. Uh, but she I, I just like that, that. She it's a transaction, but for ice cream. Right. Yeah. Right. And I like the scene where they all meet up in the mall and he's like, why are you here? <laughs> She's like, I'm part of this man. yeah. Like, yeah, I saved the world. Yeah, why are you here? What have you been doing besides being sad your girlfriend broke up with you? There's one girl you do not have listed in the show notes. who's that? Susie who's Susie? Dustin's girlfriend. Oh my God. who got so much hate online The Twitter response from the last episode was if Susie would have just given them the code, Hopper, Hopper would, would be, alive. Still be alive. I don't know that I want Hopper to still be alive, to be honest with you. If it's a choice between Hopper being alive or cutting them singing the never-ending story, that is a tough decision. Yeah, I'm fine with the way it happened. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with it, yeah. Yeah, Susie got a lot of hate for her whole, what, five minutes that she well, had screen time? I mean, I think that they obviously... The show manufactured that to create maximum suspense, right, but also course. to put some levity into the very suspenseful part of the show. We have to figure out a way to sing the never ending story. Yeah. Let's work backwards yeah. from there. I mean, I think they had like a checklist of 80s things that yeah. they had to fit into the show, and that was definitely on it. And I mean, I wanted, I'm glad that Dustin had a little cute moment with his girlfriend. I was very, the whole time, the whole season, I was hoping at some point we're going to see that this girlfriend is real. Yeah, it was otherwise, very clear we were going to see that she was real because uh, everyone thought she was fake. Exactly. I did love Steve's like, oh, she's totally real. <laughs> like, I definitely believe you. <laughs> I love their relationship. Yes. It's too cute. When when Steve sees Dustin for the first time, it's adorable. Yes. yes. It's adorable. Uh, But we do have to talk about Hopper. We're not going to go through all the male characters because we are focusing on what the show is telling us Mm -hmm. about gender. But I feel like Hopper is telling us a lot of things about gender. And none of them are really very good. Hopper is... uh, A complicated character in the first two seasons. Yeah. He is strong and loyal, but he is willing to bend the rules for people he cares about. Yeah. He will kick in doors. He will shoot people. He will fight aliens. He will do things that are- Make deals with the U.S. government. Ultra dangerous to protect Joyce, to protect Will, to protect the town, to do his job. Um, But, you know, he's the edgy cop, so he'll drink on the job. Um, he'll be hungover when he goes to work. All those kinds of things. Um, so I think that he's a very interesting character in the first two seasons. In this season, I feel like he is a total jerk. He has absolutely no ability. All of a sudden, to express emotions in any way. It's one thing to say I'm I'm not an experienced parent. I've adopted this girl I love her very much but I don't know how to communicate in this tricky situation but they like make him an idiot like he's like he doesn't even know how to say I love her but I want to help her he's just like I have feelings what do I do (laughs) like he's five emotionally he's five years old the only defense I will have for his character is that he had a previous child die and so I think that he kind of closed off that idea of being a parent and, yeah. like, lost some of those skills. I And I think that that is good background for why he is so mercurial, why he will go, right. it doesn't take much for him to go all he the way. He is somebody that needed to be in therapy, like, for sure. For sure. And I do like that the show explains explores the response to trauma basically in all the characters because all the characters have been through trauma at this point but he is just emotionally stunted to an embarrassing degree and it is very much of like he's so masculine right he's so strong he doesn't know what to do with feelings right and he treats everyone like garbage he's mean to mike He's mean to Eleven. He's mean to Joyce. He's just mean. Right. Is he still brave and willing to sacrifice himself for people? Yes. But he has just no emotional skills whatsoever all of a sudden. Whereas before I feel like he was a tough guy who had trouble with emotions. Now I feel like he's an ultra tough guy who has absolutely no ability to deal with emotion. I think it's also the idea, though, that like in season two, he has 11, right? He's like raising her. Yeah. But nobody knows. Yeah. And it's very safe. Like she's in the cabin, nothing bad can happen to her. Now she's like out and about and walking around in the world. Yeah. And that just terrifies him. I just don't like the idea of a woman having to teach a man how to be a human person. Yeah, I agree with you, but I, it's hard to come down too hard on him when he tries. Does at least he? he, I mean, at least he asks for help. No. My criticism is not with him. My criticism is with the way that he is created in this particular season. I think it was, I mean, it's like. You're feeling like they like threw away the last two seasons worth ex- of character evolution. And depth. Yeah. Yes. yes. I can see that. And I feel like they just made him a dude with a bat. <laughs> no, that's Steve. Steve has the bat. That's true. He has a gun. Steve is a dreamboat. <laughs> If we're going to talk about another guy, I just want to talk about Dimitri, the Russian. That was so cute and so sad. Yeah, that was sad. I would have watched a whole show of just him playing carnival games. <laughs> that was the best part. <laughs> it was a good show. So, what's your final verdict on Stranger Things and gender and feminism? Passing grade or no? B minus? B minus. I think I would go with a B minus. I want to see 11. I think it's doing more good than harm. Yeah. Yeah. The the positives for me are women have developed personalities. Yeah. Some of them actually contribute to the storyline. Yeah. They are necessary to move the story forward. Not all of them are love interests. Yeah. Personality is not just girl. Yeah. But could be used a little bit more and 11 needs to develop some kind of her own personality. Yeah. Okay. I agree with that assessment. We're going to talk about Orange is the New Black's latest season. Uh, I know that you did not watch this season. No, I stopped after season two. Okay. So I read the book first, which I shouldn't have done. So first I want to say the book, obviously, as we've discussed in a previous episode, is by woman Piper Kerman. The show is run by another woman, Jenji Kohan. So there is a lot and there are a lot of female writers and producers on the show. Mm -hmm. So there is that. So after the fourth season, Essence magazine reported, quote, there are no black, orange is the new black writers. Oh. And as reported, nearly 90% of the writers credited for the first four seasons are white. So that's especially remarkable because there are so many characters of color on the show. Yes. There are entire plots, entire subplots, entire... I mean, there are a lot of characters on the show who are people of color, or women of color. And so for all, or almost all, of the writers to be white was a huge misstep, I think. And there are examples in that article, in essence, where they kind of bring up things that get said by characters in the show that are kind of... make it obvious that it's white people trying to write for people of color. Okay, like what? I don't remember. Oh. <laughs> Just because I haven't watched anything past season two, so. So the show in general is celebrated for telling the stories of the types of women who seldom get to be the center of the narrative. Women of color, immigrant women, queer women, poor women, older women, women with addictions, women with mental illness, women with intellectual disabilities. All of those women get, important storylines and get backstories and their dynamic, fully developed characters. That's good. And that is why the show is celebrated. And that is why the show will always kind of get a passing score in terms of gender and feminism, but season seven, and that's the season that came on this summer, lots and lots of Piper. And you told us that Piper was the Trojan horse, right? That's what they said when the show came out. I think we've been ready to get rid of her. (laughs) Since about season four. Okay. And instead of slowly maybe weaning us off of her, they doubled down. They doubled down. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of Piper. And in this season, she's out of jail. She's out of prison. And she is, I mean, I like that they show how challenging it is to be on parole. Reintegrated. Yes. Yes. And how, you know, it's hard to get a job because no one wants to hire you because you're a felon. But if you don't get a job, then you have to go back to prison. Um, and how it's basically impossible unless you have a support system. Uh, they talk, they explore both Daya and Tasty have life sentences now. And so, so they're never getting out. They're never getting out. And so that drastically changes who they are and how they behave and how they respond to other people because they are never getting out of prison. And so they have lots to be angry about, very little to lose. But there's no consequences. Right. And so it explores in two different ways because they take different paths what those kinds of sentences can do to a person, what they can do to a woman, especially when it's unjust. I mean, Tasty was convicted of something she didn't do. Oh, okay. So she is very angry. Understandably. Yes. The show also gets into women not or people in prison in general not really getting the health care that they need. And there are a couple of characters in this season who kind of deteriorate because they're not getting their health care needs addressed, including mental health care needs addressed. Oh, okay. That's an important thing to show. Yes. Uh, And... I think really what season seven is most notable for is obviously prison is awful. Obviously prison is sometimes torturous, but prison is nothing compared to immigration detention centers. Wow. Okay. So they're making a real stark. It is very stark. And in fact, the major criticism of the season is that it's just bleak. It's just bleak on bleak on bleak and in some ways almost unwatchably heavy and dark. So not really something you watch just to escape real life and enjoy TV for a little bit. Exactly, and they, you know, in the obviously it's always going to have storylines that are very serious because it's right, about the women story in prison. About prison. But I feel like they had a better balance, and it's not like I'm like I don't want sad. I need laughs, but I it's just very heavy storytelling that is not as meaningful because it's just basically like sad, sad, sad. Um, But so what Slate said is for all its faults, it's difficult to think of another show that stares so unblinkingly at the most egregious excesses of American capitalism, bureaucracy and injustice and does so while rarely losing sight of the humanity of the people, especially the women involved. So basically everyone is saying the show in the way it expresses its themes and the way it involves women and diverse women is so important we're just gonna forgive the fact that the storylines for the past few seasons have not been as great season five i think was the worst oh okay uh why and season seven was also not very good but uh seasons one through four were great what made season five terrible for you well it was just the whole thing was a riot oh okay like the entire thing the whole season the whole season took place over about two days Oh, okay. That's different. Yes. So I like that huh. you tried to, that they tried to change the format and do a different kind of storytelling. You just like, it didn't work. But it did not work. Okay. Swing and a miss. Yes. So tell me about Handmaid's Tale oh, man. this season. So first start by telling us maybe what happened, what's notable. What do we need to know? So at this point in the Handmaid's Tale, we're in season three. And the book ends at season one. Okay. So I believe that Margaret Atwood is still a contributor, Mm -hmm. but she's not actively guiding. This is not her story. This is not necessarily her story anymore. Okay. I don't think she's opposed to anything they're doing, but I want to make that distinction. Okay. So we find out that we're five or six years now into Gilead. Mm -hmm. Um, June, who is our main character, kind of loses her mind a little bit. Cool. Serena is going to sell Fred out. So they're in Canada now. And Fred is going to be tried for war crimes. Nice. Um, That's going to be very satisfying for people who read the book. Yes, we know. We, because we didn't really get any of that in the book. No. No, we didn't. So somebody getting tried for war crimes is pretty great. And June ends up getting like 100 kids out of Gilead at the end. Last episode. Okay. However... However, big points. There is a criticism of The Handmaid's Tale that I agree with, that this is white lady feminism. Yeah. In the book... There's a lot of white ladies on that show. (laughs) Well, in the book, and I'll give the book a pass because Margaret Atwood makes a point that the United States was racist and so they removed everyone Mm -hmm. of color. So that's why the book was white, you know? But in this version of The Handmaid's Tale, we do have people of color and... They're the people that are constantly being killed off. Okay. And they're the people that are being sacrificed for June to have character development. And they're the people that are marginalized more than anybody else is marginalized. So this makes me a little bit sad. Maybe we're past woman in refrigerator and we're now on to people of color in the refrigerator. I mean, are you saying that that this is very similar to a show from 20 years ago where the male main character was the focus of all of the development and all of the females were killed and mutilated and had harm befall them to contribute to his development? Is it the same thing? I don't don't think it's quite that far. I think there's a lack of intersectionality in this feminism. Okay. I, I mean, another thing that's in this is a class issue. June, at some point, is trying to put together this group of rebels or resistance movement. And her thinking is, who were you before Gilead? And she's going to pick a lawyer. And she's eventually got like a pre-med student helping her and all of these professionals. Nothing against anybody in those fields. But what about being a lawyer equips you to survive Gilead? Right. I mean, how is that more or less helpful Than being a grocery clerk. Right. Like, I just don't see those as transferable skills. I feel like I would be looking for people who were previously doomsday preppers. (laughs) Right? (laughs) We thought you were crazy, but you turned out to be right, and you probably have some skills. So June's actions get a bunch of people of color killed this uh, season. Um, Her husband and her best friend are both black, and they're in Canada. Their story is not very well told this season. It's kind of lots of gaps and fits and starts. And then at the very end of the season, the kids land. June didn't get on the plane, but all the kids get out. And one of the, um, Martha's, the maids, gets off and says to June's husband, your wife did this. She got all of these kids here. Well, yeah, her and like 60 other handmaids and Martha's, you know, not just June. And then, um... There's a handmaid in this season who June basically just tortures because she's like a true believer. So June just makes this girl's life hard. And she's another person of color. That person ends up in a coma and basically is just a womb. They keep her alive only so she can grow this child that's in her womb. Oh, my God. And the story isn't about like, oh, my God, that's so horrible that this happened to this woman. It's this motivates June to get kids out of Gilead. Not that lady's kids. Not June's kids, but just random kids. That's pretty bad. I just, I feel like if you're a white middle class woman watching this show, you love it. Your people are being reflected as the heroes. Yeah. Nobody else. And if you're not intentionally thinking about what it's saying about race and culture, if you're just watching it and like, yeah, women are awesome. Right. Then it's fine. Then it's fine. Yeah. But I guess if you bring all this, like, academic baggage yeah. to your TV shows. And the uh, showrunner, Bruce Miller, has said, I just want this show to be entertainment. Like, I don't necessarily want people watching the show and thinking too much about it. Well, then maybe you shouldn't be making The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, I feel like maybe you should go make A Bachelor. Right? Those shows are just for fun, remember? Right. Like, this is a pretty heavy show. Like, the themes, the basic idea of Gilead. I cannot imagine a producer of... Any other very serious prestige show saying, I don't want people to think too hard about it. That seems like a major, major cop out. Well, because he's responding to this idea that um, they just have real bad luck with this show. So um, there's things that they put in the show well before it happens in real life. Oh, yeah. And then very similar things happen. And they're like, oh, look at the statement the Handmaid's Tale is making. And he's like, we're not making a statement. Yeah. Yeah. We filmed this eight months ago. Yeah. I could see how that would, yeah. Yeah. So it's just, but also, is it bad luck or is it just that Margaret Atwood pretty accurately predicted what's going to happen to us pretty soon? (laughs) I don't know. So there's that. I I feel like this show could get better. It just needs to broaden its perspective. Like, I don't feel like the overall show is bad. It's just, it's frustrating to watch every week and be like, could maybe somebody point out that June's not great at what she's doing? Yeah. She's, so she's got a white savior lady? But, but it's not even like acknowledged. And like, the other people in the show are like, oh, you're such a, can I cuss on this? <laughs> no. <laughs> you're so great. Yeah. You're so amazing. Yeah. Like, stop telling her that. She's getting people killed. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the thing, right? To see if a character's actions are being rewarded, then the show wants you to see them as good. Now, there is one handmaid that's like, you're being real conspicuous. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Well, but... but and that's my stand-in. Is the show rewarding the behavior? Because if so, then that means the show wants you to see it as good, in most cases, narratively speaking. Oh, and they're also making this um, metaphor almost to the Underground Railroad. Which I have a real issue with. Yeah. Because um, the last scene of the season is June being carried by handmaids, almost like pallbearers, because she's been injured. And then they're reading um, some Bible verses over it. And it's about Moses. And of course, the only thing about Harriet Tubman is like she's the Moses of her people. Yeah. They're making all these allusions to the Underground Road. And, and uh, as a history person, like it wasn't just white people running the Underground Railroad. Yeah. It mostly wasn't. Also, they were all running away from entirely white people, so. Yeah, so, I mean, there's just (sighs) some, if I was just watching it and I wasn't thinking. Well, yeah, but we could say that about all of those other shows. (laughs) That's true, too. We could all just be watching The Bachelor in Paradise. If you could just turn your brain off. It's fine. So speaking of shows where you can turn your brain off, I want to talk about a very random... It's going to seem random at first. So speaking of reality competition shows, there's a tattoo-related reality competition show called Ink Master. Are you aware of that it even exists? No. Okay. It's in its 12th season. (laughs) Um, Okay, so this is like... Those baking shows, but instead of who has the best cake, it's who has the best tattoo? That's correct. And then it's like... You're fired when you aren't able to advance. The yeah, X so round? the the last scene of every episode is a person being eliminated. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, and they ha- they again, it's on the twelfth season, and so apparently it's popular. It's popular, and one of the members of the Red Hot Chili Peppers is the host. Oh, okay. He's edgy, Dave Navarro. Who do you think it is? This is gonna be great. Before you look it up, who do you think I that think is? In the Foo Fighters. That's Dave Grohl. Oh, good try. You tried. I don't know how many people watch it. Uh, well, enough that it's in its twelfth season. season, and I have lots of tattoos, so I like watching it. I think it's interesting. Who are they tattooing? People. Like random volunteers? So sometimes, yes, basically, but sometimes it's like. People, who, like, it'll be like cat tattoo day. There's never been a cat tattoo. Oh. But then it'll be like galaxy tattoo. So all of these people want galaxy tattoos. and you, Okay, so it's not like you're signing up and you have no idea what you're going to get. Sometimes it is. So a lot, a lot of times it's like the tattoo is themed and the people come in and they're like, I want a picture of a pirate in a galaxy with a spaceship and a blah, blah, blah. They always want real weird stuff. And so then the tattooer has to draw it and then give them what they ask for. But sometimes they're like, okay, Misty, you choose what Allegra has to tattoo on that person. What? So then you know what I'm bad at tattooing. I'm bad at color. So you're like, okay, you got to do a color tattoo on her. And it has to be a lady face and it has to be realistic. And so then I have to give that person that tattoo. Yes. That's horrible. People People will do anything for a free tattoo. Some people. That is so mean. So, aside from that, it's a cool show. It's it's very interesting, and they always give this each season a twist. Like so, what? Sometimes they bring like like we're gonna tattoo blindfolded. No. So like one season they had like teams. It was two people f- who were all from the same shop. Oh, okay. Sometimes it was like pe- like new people who have are like been Versus, tattooing like, previous. Yes. Okay, contestants. So this season, it's Battle of the Sexes. Okay. And I generally hate that for all of the obvious obvious reasons. reasons. Hell's Kitchen uses Battle of the Sexes, by the way, every single season. That's Gordon Ramsay, right? Yes. There's always a women's team and a men's team. Every season? Every season. There was one season where he did veterans versus new people. So it was mixed gender. But like halfway through the season, they switched it to being gender. Why? Because he wanted to see... I don't know. I don't know. So in this case, in the case of Ink Master, when I heard it was Battle of the Sexes, I was a little bit glad because it meant that half You're the competitors would be women. Female tattooists, which you don't usually see. Exactly. There's usually like one or two out of 20 who are women. So if it's Battle of the Sexes, that means... You're going to see 10. 10 or 12. However, but half of them will be women. So I'm like, okay, cool. I don't like the general idea... But I like that you are making sure we've got women on the show. Okay, so at a certain point when there's not as many left, does it, like, devolve down to now it's just an individual competition? Well, it's only, like, halfway through the season right now, so I don't know. Okay. It's a very male show. Like, the host is a guy, the judges are guys. We are on the 12th season, and we've had one female winner. Oh. So it's a very male show. And so I was excited. I should not have been excited. Did they disappoint you? It's very sex. It's just like, it's lazy sexist crap. It's not just sexist crap. It's lazy sexist crap. What's an example of lazy sexist? Constantly referring to people as being members of the opposite sex. The men say things like, I'm glad it's not a baking competition. Uh, we all know who can draw better. Just dumb, dumb dumb wait okay i don't even understand crap. that one who's who can draw better men, men. Or women? oh really okay or and even female contestants would be like i know i'm on the girls team but you men sure are sensitive today just dumb oh. dumb stuff constantly we don't need any of that commentary thank you they bring on previous like winners or previous people who are really good on the show as coaches for an episode And they always give the men's team a woman coach and the woman's team a male coach to switch it up so that you know how the other team's thinking. As if all women are thinking the same thing and all men are thinking the same thing. And me as a woman tattooer, I need a man to help me understand how to beat the men. It's just stupid. Right. (laughs) I'm sorry. Yes, that's real dumb. It seems like something that would be on TV in the 90s. Where we were totally okay with accepting these, like, broad generalizations about gender and women and men. It's just very, very stupid. Okay, so I'm so confused about how this works. Okay. Somebody gets eliminated every week. Okay. What happens if one team... Gets too many people eliminated. I don't know. We're not there yet. I just I don't understand. Right now, I think there's like a one team is five and one team is four or something. Okay, so it's been relatively even. Yes. Okay, because if they're like, well, these girls are so rel- terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's like one girl left. And it's like you're the girl team now. Yeah. And on, I mean, so on a previous season, the season when a girl won, Ryan Ashley, there were three or four women on that episode or on that season. And they said, we're going to basically band together and make sure that we get at least one woman to the finale. And so it was very much like, I don't care if it's me or you, one of us is making it to the finale. And people refer to it as the feminist coup. But they formed an alliance and they were 100% loyal to the alliance and 100% loyal to the notion that we are going to get a woman to the finale. Interesting. Yes. And it worked. And then a woman won. So. It just would be nice if we had a non-gendered season of the show. Because more there are more women tattooers now. Obviously right. than there have been before. And more women get tattoos now than have in previous years. So tattooing as an industry is less Growing, male yeah. dominated. So it might be nice if the show Reflected. would reflect that. But it doesn't. So, I have a recommendation for an antidote, okay, to that stupid, stupid concept for Ink Master this season. There's a series on Netflix called Blown Away. Have you seen it? No. It's also a very edgy reality competition show, but it's for glass blowing. How edgy can glass blowing Casino? be? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean they're not like proper people baking cupcakes. You know, they're like working a shop and they're like Sure. It's edgier. Okay, I'm gonna have to watch. So so it's not the same people that bake cupcakes, is what you're saying? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. They're just they're just like tough Okay. So okay. they're not making scandalous items. No. Well okay. sometimes. Okay then. One time the guy's like, I made this hairbrush and I want it to look sexual. And everyone's like, this hairbrush looks very sexual. (laughs) Why would you want that? Okay, go ahead. You're an artist, man. So, okay. (laughs) One thing that's cool about the show is that it shows you how glass is made. Okay. Which is very cool. I've never really seen it. I mean, I knew generally, like, you... You were aware of the concept. Heat up sand and other things, and then you put it in a... And then you blow, and then it makes a shape. But it's very cool, and they show you in some good detail. I'm going to read you what Vulture says about Blown Away. Among the competitors who complete different challenges in each episode in an effort to win $60,000, which is a random amount of money, by the way, and a residency at the Corning Museum of Glass, there aren't a lot of big, made-for-reality TV personalities. So it's not like... Big Brother, where everyone is acting super outlandish. Um, But Vulture says that's kind of refreshing. The closest Blown Away gets is Deborah, an experienced glass artist who brings a feminist point of view to her work and announces in the first episode, I think I'm a very polarizing person. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. She's a very polarizing person. In fact, my best friend also watches this show, and she's like, I hate her. And I'm like, <laughs> I like her. I really like her. So she's a very polarizing person. But she makes a lot of feminist statements with her glass art. Uh, and she's a finalist, and so her whole showpiece is a commentary on gender. So Interesting. If you want to watch a reality competition that isn't baking or cooking. Or ninja Ink Or ninja-ing. This is a, Blown Away is a nice antidote to some of the same same old lame crap. <laughs> so the last show I want to talk about, unless you have any more you want to get into, is Euphoria. Okay. Have you heard about it? No. Do you know anything about it? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing at all. I'm not even aware this exists. Okay. I could make up anything. Pretty much. And I'd have to believe you. So it's an HBO show that came on this summer. It stars Zendaya. You know who that is? No. Okay. I might be saying her name wrong. I learned how to say it from my child who's 10, so I'm going to go with it. So it's a very real portrayal of Gen Z, which is like the generation after us. That is correct. Okay. The people who are like in high school right now. Okay. Uh, she plays the main character. Is and- it millennials and then Gen Z? Yeah. There's not anything in between? No. Okay. What would there be? Well, I don't know. That's what I was asking. No. That seems like a big gap. Why? I mean, the oldest millennials are in their 40s and then... No, there's no millennials in their 40s. About to be. If you're born in 1981, 82. We're getting close. I am not about to be in my 40s. You better take that (laughs) back right now. Immediately. What I meant was they're homeowners and professionals. Yes. And that goes all the way down to like right before people... People born in all the way till... I think 96? Okay. Anyway... It doesn't matter. So, is the main character, which is great. Uh, She has voiceovers, and that kind of orients us and maybe reinforces what the theme or the message or the big idea is in the episode, and she has a very strong, interesting voice. The show explores addiction and substance abuse, relationships, social media, navigating, adolescence, all those kinds of things. Um, I'm just going to give you one example. So... There's an episode where people's nudes get leaked. Nude photos get leaked. So in the episode explores that idea. And so here's what she says. Here's the thing that pisses me off about the world. Like every time someone's stuff gets leaked, whether it's J-Law or Leslie Jones, everyone's like, well, if you don't want it to get out there, don't take the nudes in the first place. I'm sorry. I know your generation relied on flowers and father's permission, but it's 2019. And unless you're Amish... Nudes are the currency of love, so stop shaming us. Shame the a-holes who created password-protected online directories of naked underage girls. So, edgy. Yeah. Because you have you feel probably lots of types of ways about that. But yeah. But she's making a very strong point here, which is like, it's not my fault because it took a nude photo. Right. It's the fault of the person who took it, who stole it, who publicized it who's sharing it, who's making money off it. That's the person who's gross, not me. I'm not the gross person. Uh, Which I think is an important statement to make. And so the show is very hard to watch. In fact, I can't even really watch it. I watch maybe one and a half episodes. Oh, okay. It's real. It's It's an interesting show. And she does a great job portraying a person who is navigating anxiety and addiction and all those kinds of things. And... So, I would recommend it if you can handle watching it. I think I'm gonna pass on this one. yeah, I mean, watching young people use drugs can be pretty hard for some people to to stand. so but it I think it's important, and I think I think maybe the thing that's confusing to me is I think the show would be very important for young people to watch. I think it is inappropriate for young people to watch it. Ah. <laughs> So that's where so I'm not stuck. It's an after-school special, exactly. And I, I don't, I don't want to sanitize it. I don't want to say take the reality or the grittiness out of it. But at the same time, I think the people who it could speak the most to shouldn't really be watching it. That's interesting. So, did you watch any other shows this summer? I did, but I don't know if I have much to say about them. Okay, good. <laughs> I watched The Good Omens. You watched Good Omens? I did. So so did I, and I was trying to find a way to fit it into the episode, but it, I feel like it doesn't say anything about gender really at all. It's just other than like war is female, but that's the same in the book. Yeah, um, I loved it. it was great. I, I liked it too. I think it's a very well done, well written, well composed show. I don't think it says anything at all about gender, really, good or bad. Uh, there are female characters in the show. Mm-hmm. The two main characters are both male. Um, well, but then really, not because they're angels and demons. Yeah, so they're not really human, right? And they don't really ascribe to gender roles the same way that humans do. So it's wonderfully weird, just like the book. It's very weird. It's very good. It's on Amazon, but yeah, I mean, I didn't. I just couldn't think of anything to say to put it in the episode other than I watched it and I did like it. And I liked th- it too. And I think it's commentary on a lot of things is really well done, obviously. My husband didn't read the book and he could make it like an episode. And he's like, this is too weird. I'm out. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know if you need to read the book no, or not. I don't not. think so. I don't think so. But there's a lot of little callbacks to things in the book where if you didn't read the book, you wouldn't pick up on it. But if you didn't read the book. It doesn't matter. It just matter to Yeah. It's just like a, there's a chapter where I Elvis is working you're- in a diner. I think maybe your husband just has a low tolerance for weird. <laughs> That's probably true. I mean, <laughs> you have very abstract. I don't like it. You have a pretty low tolerance for weird too, so. Yeah, but I liked this. This was good. Good. So what fall shows are you looking forward to? The Good Place. The Good Place. So it's the last season. Yeah. So that makes me sad. I'm excited about The Good Place though. Allegra, what do you want to watch? God, your list is going to be long. Yeah, I mean, I want to watch a lot of shows, but... uh I think, obviously, the one I'm most looking forward to is Grey's Anatomy. It really left off last season on a cliffhanger. I am so amazed that that show is still on. It's good, man. It's good. What season is it on? I don't know, 15, 16, something like that. Wow. Probably, I think this will be the 16th. That's crazy. It's good. That's why it's still on. Lots of shows that aren't good last that long, just so we're clear. Clear disagree okay so next week we're doing our summer movies episode yes you watched a movie i have every intention of doing that this weekend yes does anyone believe her (laughs) no i'm gonna go watch the kitchen this weekend yes although i read the reviews and i'm not expecting much all right so anyway next week we're going to talk about summer movies and uh, and i did watch a bunch of kid movies that doesn't matter to anyone well, it still do, counts to do me. kids movies make commentary on gender sometimes they do okay that's true thank you for listening to this episode of professors our podcast about seeing movies culture and history through our lady eyes i'm misty and from stranger things i identify with Susie. of course you do and i'm allegra and of course i identify as a nancy i can see that yeah we'd love to hear from you what you thought about today's episode what you'd like us to discuss in future episodes or how great you think we are Which is pretty great. To connect with us, you can follow us on Twitter at professors, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, or by email, same address, professors at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who has been listening, commenting, liking, and reviewing our podcast. Please keep doing all of those things, and we hope you recommend our podcast to a friend. And remember, you could sing the never-ending story. No, I could not.